Hey, a Penknife listeners, Corey here. I again got stuck with the task of bothering you to help us promote the show. This season was both extremely time-consuming and costly, and if you like what you're hearing and want more Penknife, please help us out by doing one or more of the following. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us right now, tell your friends both in person, if that still happens, and on social media, and if you can spare a few bucks a month, please support us at patreon.com penknife. Thanks for suffering through my spiel. Here's the show. I hope you enjoy it. It's July 22nd, 1967, and Orton and Halliwell are at a fancy party hosted by Peter Wills, a producer who's head of drama for Yorkshire Television. To spice things up a bit, and to show his contempt for the elite world Joe's dragging him into, Kenneth decides to wear an Etonian tie. First impressions aren't good. When Will sees it, he's absolutely horrified and asks Kenneth to remove it. It's a joke, Kenneth says, and Wills responds, I'm afraid it's a joke against you then. People who imagine you're passing yourself off as an old Etonian, they'll laugh at you. Okay, I need to interrupt here to ask you what Eton and an Etonian tie are. From the context, I assume Eton is an aristocratic prep school and Etonians are assholes. And because he was going to this bougie dinner, he wanted to make a point. Look, I'm an asshole, just like you. Am I right? Yeah, Eton was founded in 1440, and it is aristocratic. It's been called the chief nurse of England's statesmen, which makes me feel kind of sick to my stomach. Though it now calls itself progressive, back then she was a brutal nurse for sure. They were still caning boys into the 1980s, bare-arsed as a rule. Boris Johnson attended. Oh right, that explains it. I think the joke is actually closer to my dad's favourite. How do you know if someone's vegan? How? Don't worry, they'll tell you. (laughs) Most Etonians wouldn't have had the good grace to hide it, which is what Kenneth is getting at. Ah, uh, right. But it's still Kenneth who's the asshole. Yeah, and Wills isn't done bullying him. You're pathetic, he says. It's disgraceful wearing that tie. You're making people angry. I don't care, Kenneth says, laughing a little too readily. I want to make them angry. But why, the producer says. People dislike you enough already. Why would you make them more angry? I mean, it's permissible, although silly as a foible of youth. But you... A middle-aged non-entity? It's sad and pathetic. Oof. That's a hard one to get up from. Mm, not if you own it. My name is Corey Eastwood, and I'm a writer, bookseller, and middle-aged non-entity from New York. And I'm Ramona Stout. I'm a writer, and I still commit many a foible, fading youth aside. And I'm Santiago Lamuan, a writer, a bookseller, who's not quite middle-aged and not quite a non-entity from Buenos Aires. You're listening to Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, who definitely committed it. This same Peter Wills recommends Kenneth visit his friend, Dr. Ismay, for help with his anxiety. On August 3rd, feeling desperate and suicidal, Kenneth sees Ismay and tells him that the trip to Tangier was the last straw. His relationship with Orton is once and for all coming to an end. Next, he's talking about killing himself, then a breath later he's back to arguing for the writing credit that's been denied him. But you don't understand how reliant he is on me for phrasing, titles, themes. And it doesn't take long before his shrink gets sick of him. Dr. Ismay says, I thought he was a bit of a pain in the neck, a bit of a burden. You felt you couldn't get rid of him, a depressed, deprived person who wants more and more of the doctor. Oh, wow. Sounds like Kenneth got himself a great doctor. He eventually sends Kenneth home with antidepressants and some amphetamines, but the next day Halliwell is back, this time ranting about Orton's promiscuity. 
Selfish Joe just can't seem to stop himself from fucking everything that moves. And poor Kenneth? He just can't sleep. Dr. Ismay gives him some elixir chloral to help with the insomnia and tells him to call if things get worse. But he's beginning to realize that if the medication doesn't work, Kenneth is probably going to need to be sectioned, which is UK speak for being committed to a mental institution. Over the next few days, people who bump into the couple notice that Kenneth seems seriously disturbed, while Joe bounces around all chipper, seemingly oblivious to his boyfriend's suffering or just deliberately trying to ignore it. At 5pm on August 8th, Halliwell visits Dr. Ismay for an emergency appointment. By this point, he's barely functioning, and Ismay realises that the only option is to section him. He prescribes stronger antidepressants and begins to make arrangements for his hospitalisation. While Kenneth is waiting for his prescription to be filled, he pops over to see none other than his new BFF, Peter Wills. Wills, who has never been alone with Kenneth and has mostly served as his tormentor, finds the situation more than a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, having to face the person you've shit-talked in a group or behind his back is never the most pleasant thing. Especially when that person's about to be sectioned. No, I can't imagine it is. And perhaps for that reason, he just lets Kenneth ramble. According to Wills, and with Wills, I think it's particularly important that we attribute him as a source because he might not be the most reliable. Kenneth says, Of course Joe would miss me more than I'd miss him. You should see Joe, he's much different when you're not there and I'm with him. If I say I'm going to leave, he staggers about saying, You can't destroy me. You can't leave me. I can't bear it. Eventually, Kenneth tires himself out. And as soon as he leaves, Wills, knowing that Kenneth is out of the flat, phones Joe at home. This window is important, not only because Kenneth was always there in the bedsit, which meant Joe could hardly ever speak freely about him, but also because they were both brilliant at imitating each other, and they were in the habit of doing so whenever people phoned. Sometimes someone could be on the phone for five minutes chatting with Joe, only to realise they'd actually been talking to Kenneth, or vice versa. And this time, when Joe picks up, Wills knows it's the real Joe. He tells him that Kenneth is very sick, and that Joe should skip the swanky party they were planning on attending that night. A cynical read on this phone call would be that Peter Wills wasn't so much looking out for Kenneth's health as he was his own party. See, he'd arranged the get-together that night and was expecting celebrities such as Vivian Lee and Harold Pinter. To avoid another incident with Kenneth showing up wearing an Etonian tie or Oxford comma or something else offensive only to a small subset of posh Brits, Hallowell was, under no circumstances, to be invited. Joe had promised him that he wouldn't bring Kenneth, but you could imagine that after Wills saw the state Kenneth was in, he realized that if he did show up, he'd ruin the party. Better to tell Joe just to sit this one out. So that's what Joe does. He stays home with Kenneth, and that evening they only go out to do some shopping. And, as has been his style for the past few weeks, no matter the weather, Kenneth sports a safari jacket and a pair of black sunglasses. Nice. The rockstar look. Well, Kenneth isn't going to be doing any partying. When their downstairs neighbour invites them in for a beer, Kenneth can't even seem to open his mouth in response. Joe does the talking and declines, saying he needs to get some sleep because he's got a meeting in the morning with the producer, Richard Lester, to discuss plans to turn Up Against It into a film without the Beatles. And can you guess which Beatles got cut slash merged into one in the new version of the script? Mm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say my two favourites, Ringo and George. You got it. It's also worth noting that the John and Paul starring roles were set to be filled by Mick Jagger and Ian McKellen. That evening, actor Kenneth Cranham phones and asks if they want to go to a late night screening of Yoko Ono's film, Bottoms. 
Joe checks in with Kenneth, and the response is, sorry, no, Kenneth's not feeling up to it. But the next calls, which come from Dr. Ismay, find Kenneth in a better mood. Ismay says he's contacted a psychiatrist who's going to come by in the morning to check in on him. But Kenneth says it's not necessary, and that Ismay is taking the matter far too seriously, that he'll make the arrangements to see the psychiatrist at a more convenient time. Ismay isn't convinced, though. There's a high rate of suicide between the time when a patient is scheduled for sectioning and the moment when they actually check into the hospital. He calls him back twice more that night, and on the third call, Kenneth insists there's really nothing to worry about. I've started taking the new tablets. I feel much better. Thank you for the trouble you've taken. He might actually have been feeling better. Maybe the pills were working when Ismay called. Or he was lying. He felt worse than ever before, but he didn't want to be sectioned and was telling Ismay everything was alright in order to get him off his case. Or maybe he was just experiencing that moment of relief that people feel after they've finally made the decision to end it all. Nothing more to worry about because, well, soon there won't be anything more. Sometime between 2 and 4 in the morning of August 9th, 1967, Kenneth Hallowell bludgeoned Joe Orton to death with a hammer. He then wrote the following note. If you read his diary, all will be explained. K.H. P.S. Especially the latter part. He placed the note on top of Joe's red leather-bound diary, and then, if he wasn't already naked when he wrote the note, he took off all his clothes and poured himself a cup of pineapple juice from a tin. He used the juice to wash down 22 pills of Nebutal. They killed him within 30 seconds. Orton was most likely asleep when the nine hammer blows rained down on his skull, cratering it, as John Lahr wrote, like a burnt candle. The collaged walls above him were splattered with bits of his brain, and what was left of his head was haloed by a crimson stain extending from his pillow to his sheets. Halliwell died first, as it may have taken hours for Orton's heart to finally stop. But all evidence points to the likelihood that the first blow knocked him out. He didn't feel the other eight, nor was he conscious during those last gruesome moments. When a chauffeur came knocking the next morning to pick Orton up for a meeting, he got no answer. And when he looked in through the letterbox, he saw the top of Halliwell's head splattered with crusted blood. The police knocked down the door and found Halliwell nude on the floor, a can of pineapple juice and the half-drunk glass next to him. Orton lay partially clothed in pajamas in his bed. Early news reports ran headlines such as Loot Man in Double Death, Loot Man Dies, Orton Murder Hammer Attack Frenzy. The police themselves described the killing as, quote, a deliberate form of frenzy. Uh, I apologize in advance for the bad taste of this observation, but I think Joe would allow it, or even appreciate it, but seriously? A deliberate form of frenzy? Could there be any more British way to describe the killing? A combination of gross understatement and being overly literal in a way that, in the end, says nothing. Why not just say he was intentionally bludgeoned to death? A deliberate form of frenzy is much more poetic, though, no? Ah, yes, Britain. The island that brought the world Shakespeare, the Beatles, and cops who write in beautifully stylized poetic prose. The first reports all described Kenneth as Joe's flatmate and friend, and speculated that he was upset because Joe asked him to leave. 
They also all mentioned that Joe was divorced, which was a lie Joe often told that was one part hiding his homosexuality in a society where, up until two weeks before his death, homosexuality was illegal, and another part taking the piss. As in, I'll fill my plays with gay innuendo, go out cottaging every night and live with a man who's clearly my boyfriend, but I'll say I was married and divorced and this homophobic society will believe it because that's easier to swallow than the thought that someone much more clever, handsome, rich, and famous than you actually likes to fuck guys. It fooled lots of people, Joe's family included. Here's an excerpt from Leonie Orton's memoir, I Had It In Me. Mm, can that title be considered Orton-esque if she's an Orton? I mean, was Anna Freud a Freudian? Hmm, I'll think on those very important questions, but for now, let's get to the excerpt. This is from when Leonie's husband, George, comes back from London right after the murder. He's talked to the police, and this begins with him telling Leonie, the narrator here, what he's learned. Ken murdered John. He took a hammer to his head and then took some pills and done himself in. That's what happened. You know what they're saying about John and Ken, don't you? I shook my head. In the Daily Sketch, they reckon they're homos. This was a revelation to the family. I could hardly believe what he was saying. John? Homo? But he never acted like a puff. Do you think it's true? I asked. Dougie appeared embarrassed. Perhaps it is true, I puzzled. Because after leaving home... He only ever lived with Kenneth. We read that quote not to out Leonie Orton as a homophobe, because she's not. And in fact, in the 55 years that have followed her brother's death, she's used his memory to champion gay liberation. But we read it to point out how repressive homophobic society was when Joe and Kenneth lived. Joe had to hide, even from his sister whom he loved, a major part of his identity. The Daily Sketch, what a name, was the first paper to mention they were gay. But others soon followed suit and began to report that Kenneth killed him because he'd found out that Joe was going to leave him for another man. And was he? Is that what the last latter part of the diary that Halliwell referenced in his suicide note says? Well, here's the thing. Joe's diary ends mid-sentence on August 1st, 1967, a week before his murder, while he's describing a botched hospital procedure Leonia told him about. Joe is a completist about his diaries. He never ended mid-sentence. Nor did he, since beginning them 10 months earlier, ever go a week without journaling. Mm, so someone removed the last pages. All signs point to that, yes. It's the big mystery surrounding their deaths and one that, sadly, will probably never be solved. And as in any good mystery, there are a number of theories out there about what happened to the pages and what they might have contained. Ooh, theories. All the better if they're conspiratorial. I'm listening. Well, the most echoed speculation is that Orton's agent, Peggy Ramsey, who was legal guardian of the diaries, removed the last pages. She never copped to doing so, and after her death in 1991, nothing seems to have turned up. Here's John Lahr, who used the diaries to write his biography on Orton in 1978, and later transcribed and published them in 1986. It's possible that Peggy, who, by the way, had lost Orton's real diary. It doesn't, no, nobody knows where it is. It's not, I work from a Xerox copy. The actual original can't be found. Um, the Tangier diary, which was separate, uh, was f found in the possession of Simon Callow. Uh, and so Peggy's, who was in fiduciary responsibility for the estate, was, I'm afraid, not too responsible. 
So you can see how a theory can be constructed here that Peggy Ramsey removed the last pages and then perhaps deliberately lost everything but the photocopy of the diaries in order to create further distance from her initial theft of the pages. Hmm, pure speculation, but sure, it could be. But why would she go to that length? What might she have been hiding? Well, if she stole the pages, there are two major theories for what might have motivated her to do so. The first is that the pages contained references to an affair Joe was having with some celebrity. And in order to protect the man's name, Peggy yanked all the pages that referenced it. This possibility would obviously help to explain why Halliwell offered up Joe's diary as his explanation for the crime. Essentially, he was cheating on me and going to leave me, so I offed him. Leonie Orton seems to believe this is the case, and as late as 2017, she was still appealing to the public and asking Joe's mystery lover to come forward. It's a possibility, but I doubt it. Joe is sleeping around, definitely. That's chronicled in great detail throughout the diary. But I find it unlikely that in one week he all of a sudden met someone special for whom he was about to leave Kenneth. We also have Dr. Ismay's testimony of what Kenneth said to him that last week. He complained on and on about not getting the credit he felt he deserved and about Joe's promiscuity. He even expressed fear that Joe was going to leave him. But he never said anything about Joe having met someone new or told the doctor that there was some scumbag out there who was trying to steal his boyfriend. If that's what was preoccupying him in the end, you'd think he'd have mentioned it to someone. Okay, so the other theory as to why Peggy might have removed pages, if in fact she did remove them, is that she was doing so to protect her friend Peter Wills, as the final pages of the diary might have said some damning stuff about him. Wills hated Halliwell, and his digs at him weren't limited to the middle-aged non-entity attack when Kenneth showed up wearing the Etonian tie. Wills himself was attracted to Joe. So there you go, a scumbag trying to steal his boyfriend. And he'd always wanted Kenneth out of the picture. To do so, he maintained a fairly steady campaign of bullying. Following the release of the 2017 documentary called Joe Orton Laid Bare, the Daily Mail ran an article titled TV Producer Unmasked a Second Killer. The article cited several interviews from the documentary, including the actor Kenneth Cranham, who said, I think Wills almost single-handedly brought about the murder of Joe. And producer Michael Codron, who added, I would nominate Wills as murderer number one because he made no hiding of his contempt for Kenneth Halliwell and his exclusion. I think it's it's fairly clear that it wasn't just a case of somebody going off the rails. It was a case of somebody being manoeuvred out of the frame. This is the film's director, Richard Curzon-Smith, discussing Peter Wills' role in the tragedy. Peter Wills um, sent Kenneth Halliwell to Dr Ismay, uh, and this all happens, and I'm utterly convinced that that was the whole galvanising thing behind the circumstances of the murder. And here again is John Law weighing in on Peter Wills' culpability. To be called to your face a middle-aged non-entity, I cannot imagine anything more awful and brutal and deadly. So if you're saying, I think that, you know, People sometimes get in quarrels where they say something that's awful or difficult, and then a person kills themselves. So to the to the to some extent, he's an accessory to the crime, but he's not the cause of it. I mean, Hallowell was suicidal. All right, 
This is a total aside, but the Daily Mail calling Peter Wills the second killer was not the first time Mr. Wills was linked to an unnatural and tragic death. Wills had been an actor when he was younger, and in 1937, while traveling from New York to England on the SS Paris, a voyage on which Ernest Hemingway was also a passenger, Wills' quote-unquote companion, Peter Vosper, a fellow actor who was well known to be gay, disappeared from the ship and was presumed drowned. At the time, the most Crawford's story was that Vosper found out that his lover, Peter Wills, was flirting with another fellow passenger, Muriel Oxford, Miss Great Britain, 1935, and that, overcome with jealousy, he tossed himself out the porthole. Now, that story seems more than a bit dubious to me, but we're not going to get into what might have happened there. What's worth noting, though, is that at the time that Wills entered Orton and Halliwell's life, there was a morbid warning that people still like to utter behind his back. Never get on a ship with Peter Wills. Great. So the Daily Mail accused him of a 55-year-old murder, and you just accused poor dead Peter of an 85-year-old murder. I'm just saying. And in fact, I'll defend Mr. Wills a bit here by also saying that while I do find the theory that Peggy removed the pages to protect Wills more plausible than the mystery lover theory, I still doubt it's actually the reason the pages went missing. Why, if Peter Wills was torturing Halliwell to the breaking point, would Halliwell go see a doctor who was recommended by and a close friend of Peter Wills? Furthermore, why would Halliwell, while waiting for his prescription to be filled that final day, go over and see Wills? If this was the man he hated more than any other, the one who was killing him as he replayed the middle-aged non-entity comment over and over again, why pay him a visit? Well, he could have visited in order to tell Wills where to stick it. I mean, as we just heard, Wills had been an actor, and perhaps a good one. And maybe he was lying to John Law, and in the 1987 BBC documentary, when he described Halliwell's visit and the phone call he made to Orton shortly thereafter. Maybe they actually had a big blowout fight, during which time Wills said some particularly nasty things that later that night made it into Orton's diary. Well, Wills would have to have been a really nefarious character and a good liar. That's possible, and that's why I suppose the Wills theory is the more plausible of the two. But if you were suffering from that kind of suicidal anguish that Halliwell was, and your worst enemy said to you, why don't you go talk to my good friend the shrink? Would you go to that shrink? Okay, but it's worth noting that Dr. Ismay wasn't Kenneth's first choice. He wanted to go to the Samaritans, the mental health charity, but they didn't have any appointments for him. Kenneth also wasn't in his right mind and probably wasn't exercising his best judgment. And on top of that, you need to consider that homosexuality had just been legalized and Kenneth had spent his entire life being very wary of doctors. Here's Leicester University literature professor Emma Parker explaining. I mean, the tragedy of of their lives is that Halliwell was obviously mentally ill and didn't seek help because it was the law that doctors had to report gay men to the police. So most gay men just avoided going to doctors. But what might Orton's diaries have said about Wills? Remember, this was nearly 50 years before we as a society began to reckon with the serious implications of bullying and trying to hold bullies accountable. Being nasty, and especially being nasty to a guy like Kenneth Halliwell, was hardly a crime back then. More like a time-honored pastime, engaged in by many an insecure wordsmith with a penchant for going after easy targets in order to feel better about themselves. 
All right, so if Peggy didn't remove the pages to protect an unknown lover or Peter Wills, then what happened to the end of the diary that Halliwell said contained the explanation for the tragedy? Well, after spending the last six months of my life doing very little aside from researching and writing about Jordan and Kenneth Halliwell, my theory is that the cops lost it. No, I'm not just reverting back to the old when in doubt blame the blue rule of thumb, which is generally a good one. But if, as is widely speculated, that Peggy removed the pages, I find it a bit surprising that she never spoke about it at the end of her life, neither publicly nor, as far as we know, privately. And at the time of Joe's death, he was, as he says in his diary's title, a somebody. But he was not the somebody he would become after the publication of the Lar biography, the diaries, and the 1987 biopic starring Gary Oldman and Alfred Molina. That year, the Orton Halliwell story was the talk of the town, and everybody wanted to know what happened to the pages. Peggy was in her late 70s, and if she was lying to protect someone, you have to imagine that the pressure to spill the beans must have been pretty great. Yet she maintained to her dying day that she did not remove the pages. Again, pure speculation, but I think I believe her. I find it more plausible that the police just did sloppy detective work. After all, it was two homosexuals that were dead, and the London police in the 1960s weren't exactly known for caring much about the fate of gay people. It could have been as simple as some detective thinking to himself, The note says the important bit of the diary is in the end, and I'm not bloody reading the whole thing, so I'll pull out the end, read those pages, and I'll be on me way to the pub. And then those pages got lost, perhaps at the pub, and the much sexier, more tantalizing story of Peggy removing the pages to protect someone was born. Sadly, the easiest answer, in this case police incompetence, is often the most likely. Anyway, whether you blame Kenneth alone, Peter Wills, or the theatre world that wanted Joe to themselves and did their best to alienate Kenneth, the facts are the facts. Kenneth couldn't live with Joe, nor could he live without him. He murdered him and then killed himself. But if you are going to extend blame, I think Simon Shepard sums it up well here. You could argue that if you have to have a co-murderer, what the co-murderer is, is a, 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 an oppressed gay community. And as an activist, I would say, so the ultimate murderer is the society that's turned them into an oppressed community that therefore behave in marginalised ways. So I would say, just as I would say nowadays, so much of the responsibility for all of the sort of apparent ills and violences and difficulties, probably neoliberalism, um, I would say uh, that if you want the co-murderer, you finally have to say it's the dominant state in which those people existed. On August 18th, 1967, the funeral party arrives at Golders Green Crematorium. The attendant perks up from his newspaper and asks, completely deadpan, Is this the 2.30 or the 2.45? Fair enough, Joe would have appreciated that line, might even have written it into one of his plays. Peggy Ramsey, mourning that day in a white dress and white gloves, steps forward and answers the man's question. She apologizes for all the press that have already gathered and explains the presence by saying, this is considered a fashionable funeral. 
she and Peter Wills have organized the service. And just like one of their parties, they've made sure some big names are in attendance. Harold Pinter and actor Donald Pleasance are among them. Draped in a maroon velvet pole, Joe's coffin is carried into the chapel to Joe's favorite song, The Beatles' A Day in the Life. The recording sounds like it's been mutilated in the traffic accident the song describes. It sputters and crackles and skips at a few pivotal moments. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grave. Men who made the grey, men who made the grey. Not only is the quality horrible, but they've managed to find a doctored version with the I'd love to turn you on dramatic atonal crescendo bit chopped out in the most awkward way. The combined effect, ironically, is absurd, almost trippy, and there's no doubt Joe would have appreciated this as well. After the eulogies have been read, the coffin is sent up a conveyor belt to a door that's supposed to be the crematorium, but in fact is just a stage prop. The body will be cremated elsewhere after the service. When the belt starts up, there's a lurch. The coffin juts forward, then stops abruptly as the belt starts to falter. The audience gasps. Is this silly contraption really going to break down with Joe's body on top of it? Truth be told, Nobody would find that funnier than Joe himself. But then the motor catches and the coffin makes its way up the ramp and through the door of its theatrical cremation. The service comes to an end. Halliwell's service is a bit smaller. Four people, to be exact. Peggy Ramsey and three family members. Kenneth is also cremated, and his aunt suggests that his ashes be combined with Joe's. Joe's brother George agrees, and Joe and Ken are mixed, then scattered in the Golders Green Garden of Remembrance. In death, the power dynamic that had tortured Kenneth throughout the years of Joe's success disappeared. They literally became equals. They became one. Wow, mixing a murderer's ashes with those of his victim. There's almost something beautiful about it. That is, if it weren't so tragic. So you're probably thinking, that's that. Especially if you've read the biography, seen the biopic or one of the documentaries, we've pretty much covered all the ground that's usually covered. But there's another part of this story, a very important one, that thus far hasn't really been told. Which is crazy because, as we mentioned in episode one, it's been hiding in plain sight for 35 years. But for various reasons, no one's really talked about it. Because it's taboo. So much so that when I stumbled upon it, Part of me didn't even want to go there either. But to hell with it. We're going. We've looked at Jordan the book defacer, Jordan the great playwright, and Jordan the murder victim. Next time on Penknife, we'll look at Jordan the pederast. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lemoine. Joe Walton is voiced by Lou Ellis. Special thanks in this episode to John Lahr, Simon Shepard, Richard Kirsten-Smith, and Emma Parker. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. 
Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Ricker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. We'd hoped season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one, but telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making Penknife, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a tin of pineapple juice or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening.